2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter 2. Find your place and stand with me. We'll get right into it tonight. Verse 17 is where we're going to be tonight. I want to read the first three verses once more as we get back into this text and wrap up chapter 2 and then move into chapter 3 next week. So, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. The Bible says, But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that brought them, bought, bought them, I'm sorry, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, their damnation slumbereth not. Okay, so speaking of these people, verse 17. These are wells without water, clouds, that are carried with a tempest, to whom the mist of darkness is reserved forever. For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through much wantonness, those that were clean escaped from them who live in air. While they promised them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. For of whom a man is overcome, of the same is he brought in bondage. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world, through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein, and overcome, the latter is worse, latter and is worse with them than the beginning. For it had been better for them to have known the way of righteousness, to have not known it, than after they have known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it has happened unto them according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again, the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. Let's pray tonight. Father, I pray that tonight you would give us insight into Peter's words here. Lord, what, what they mean and then what they specifically mean for us. And I pray that we would find application that your Holy Spirit would illuminate and, and make clear to us this truth. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I don't know how many of you have participated in or signed up for the Walmart grocery pickup. Um, but it is a wonderful thing. Pastor was speaking on modernity this morning and the effects that it has on us. And I don't know what that does to us, um, but I like it. And I'm grateful for, for it. Used to be, you know, you had to grow your own food. And, uh, and then you could go to a store and just pick it up. And now they'll bring it and put it in your car. So life has gotten, gotten great, I guess, in, in one sense. There are still moments, though, where we'll run out of one or two things, and um, Elizabeth will ask me to go to the store. So I'm not the only guy here. Okay, so you know what I'm about to say here. So, you know, I don't grocery shop a lot, and I, I see things, and I'm a little bit of a sucker for things I like. I don't think about the food typically on a weekly basis, but if I see something in the store, oh, I had, a, I had that when I was a kid, or oh, I really enjoy that. And so, you know, I'll pick up one or two things, and if my boys are with me, it is really bad. We'll go in for two things and come out with four grocery bags full of stuff. And I don't even know what we bought. Usually we're going in to get eggs or something and it, it gets really bad. One of the things that I'll almost buy if I'm by myself or, or with my sons is my favorite cereal, which is Cracklin' Oat Bran. Okay, so one person knows what that is. Um, and I, I guess that speaks to how old and boring I am maybe. Um, but I like that. And so I don't eat a lot of cereal in the mornings, but, um, but every once in a while I get that hankering for some. So I'll get that box of cereal, put it in the pantry, a day or two passes. And, and I will think to myself, 
today's a great day for that cereal. I would like to have some. And, and it's a subconscious, but you get that hankering. You know what I'm talking about? And you go to the pantry, and there the box is. And I'll reach out and grab the box. Now, I don't have, you know, 20 kids like the Durrells or the Ballingers, but I have four, and, and they eat a lot of food. And so I'll grab the box, and, and it's very light. This happens to me all the time. And, you know, you shake it, and there's nothing in there. And I don't know who puts empty packages back in the pantry, but people do it, apparently. And it's so frustrating. And maybe you could share a similar story in, in your home, but it, there, we could all maybe identify with an expectation of something good, and then we were let down. You know, and then the disappointment that might fill our heart in that moment. But I want you to imagine tonight that it's not a box of cereal or something that you want, but instead it's water. And it's water that you desperately need to sustain life. And you have an expectation to get some, and you need it. You're in an arid desert, perhaps. The sun is beating down, and you're in need of water. And in the distance, you see a well. And then your hope begins to grow. And through much difficulty and labor, you inch closer and closer to this well. And you get to it, needing the water that is contained therein, only to look over the side of the well and discover it's bone dry. And it's completely empty. Now that's disappointment on a whole different level, isn't it? Water is necessary for life. And in the same way, truth is necessary for spiritual life. Okay, I want to take that thought and, 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 and that metaphor that we're using tonight of water equals life, truth equals spiritual life. Hold that for a minute because I'm going to add to that thought another thought and then we'll come out with our equation at the end and what I think the Lord would have us look at tonight. Okay, in the text that we just read, there were people in the church that were asserting themselves and they were teaching a doctrine that was contrary to God's Word. And Peter says it, chapter 2, he says, there were false prophets back in the old days, in the Old Testament, today there's false teachers, they're still here, and they're going to be around. And they were making promises to the people in the church then. And in verse 19, Peter specifically says they were promising people liberty. This gets a little confusing. Because is Christian liberty a true Bible doctrine? Well, the answer is it is. Christian liberty is a true Bible doctrine. It's a doctrine that Peter was teaching. It was a doctrine that Paul was teaching. It's a doctrine we still teach today. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, Paul wrote, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. Christ's death on the cross forever paid the sin debt of all those who place their faith and trust in Him. And if tonight you've put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ, the Bible says you are free and you have Christian liberty. It's through faith alone, not good works or any personal merit that an individual gains access into heaven and their sins are paid for because of Christ's blood. The doctrinal truth of salvation is wonderful, but it is open to antimonian abuse. And you say, what does antimonian mean? Not anti-ammonia, all right? Antimonian. Okay, there were some in the church who said that Christ's death paid the price for our sin. And so no matter what we do, we're still going to heaven. Is that true or false? Well, based on the Bible, it's true. 
It doesn't matter what we do. That is the truth. Okay, but, but the, 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 this is how they, this is what the theologians call antimonian. This is what they did with that truth. This was the application for them. Antimonian is one who believes that because salvation is through faith alone, then we are not obligated to moral law. So we have Christian liberty, therefore we are freed from moral law. Christ had said that he would return soon. It was in Peter's lifetime that Jesus had died. It was in Peter's lifetime and many of the people that were in the church that Jesus had made a promise to return soon. And the years had gone on, and now Peter's an old man, and these people were looking at, at Peter. They were looking at the church and saying, you said he was coming back soon. He said he was coming back soon, and he hasn't come back soon. And they drew this conclusion. Therefore, he's not coming back because he didn't come soon. Now, in chapter 3, Peter's going to define what soon means for us because he's going to say, and we'll look at it next week, that one day to the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. So defining soon is relative. And Peter makes sure to clear that up in the next chapter. And they were defining soon as a lifetime. And they were saying he hasn't come back. And because he hasn't come back, then he's not going to come back. And so we shouldn't restrict ourselves to practicing Christian disciplines. We should enjoy life. We should not restrict ourselves from enjoying the pleasures of this world. We still are going to go into heaven. We still believe in Jesus. And in verse 18, Peter describes their teaching this way. And I want you to look at it with me. He says, for when they speak... Great swelling words, but he says they're words of vanity and they allure. The the idea of the word allure is like a fisherman taking a hook and putting a worm on it and throwing it into the sea and they're alluring the fish. And so they're alluring, he says, through the lusts of the flesh, uh, through much wantonness. Wantonness means no restraint. Those that were clean escaped from them who live in air. So you have these new converts who have recently asked Christ to forgive them of their sin. There's a call to repentance that Peter and the other apostles and the preachers of the day were making. They give their life to Christ. They say, look, if you're going to give your life to Christ, then you need to change your life. And they were changing their life. And then within the church, there were people saying, if you're saved and you're going to heaven, don't worry about what you do. Through wantonness, through no restraint, do what you want to do. Look like you want to look. Act like you want to act. Have the attitude you want to have and do what you want to do because Jesus has your back. His grace is bigger than your sin and it covers it. So let's, and forgive me, but let's sin. They wouldn't say it that overtly. They were using really big fancy words. They were confusing people, but that's what they were teaching. And the message sounded good. It especially sounded good to, compared to Peter's. You read chapter 2 and you kind of get the impression like, man, what is wrong with this cranky old man? I mean, it's kind of how you start to read it. Like, wow, he's breathing fire here. And they're looking at Peter's message and looking at this message and saying, I like this way that sounds a whole lot more. But they were teaching a message that appealed to emotion and desire, and it was void of spiritual content. It had no vitality. It had no depth. And so in verse 17, Peter writes this to these people. I want you to make sure you understand who these people are. And in verse 17, he says, these are wells without water. 
They are bone dry. You have an expectation of something, and I'm promising you there's nothing there but disappointment. And then he goes on to say, clouds that are carried with the tempest. It's the idea of clouds that appear, and it looks like they're going to rain, but then they don't. And he says, to whom the mist of darkness, it is reserved forever for these people. And I want you to understand that about them. They make big, appealing promises. And they, 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 they sing this word liberty. But behind them, they leave no blessing, no help, no challenge, no strength, and no value. In John chapter 4, and I, and I want you to turn there with me if you would. John chapter 4. There's a story. And while you're turning there, I'll, I'll refresh your minds. Jesus with, was with his disciples. The Bible says that he needed to pass through Samaria. And he gets to a place where there's a well. The Bible says it's named Jacob's well. And he sends his disciples off to get food for them. And so the men take off and they're going to get food. And a lady comes to draw water by herself from the well. And Jesus looks at the lady and he asks her for a drink. And in verse 9, read with me. He says, Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? And then the author gives us clarity, for the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, well, then thou wouldest asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. The woman says unto him, Sir, she looks him up and down. You don't have anything to draw with, and that well is deep. From where are you going to get that living water? Verse 13. And Jesus answered, and he said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water, points to the well perhaps, will thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him. Now catch these words. A well of water springing up into everlasting life. It's this idea of so much water is coming out of the well. It's shooting out like a geyser. You don't need to draw from it. You just need to put your hand in or put your face in if you want to. It's that much. There's a big difference between being thirsty and reaching a well that's dried up and being thirsty and reaching a well that's springing up. There's a vast difference between those two types of wells. And the question I want to ask you tonight is this. What's in your well? What's in your well? See, these men, what Peter describes them as false teachers, he says from the outside they look like they've got water in them. They look healthy. They look normal. They look like any other preacher or teacher. They may even look better. Obviously, they had some money because they were really seducing the people and getting money from them. He says, they're, they're selling you and taking your goods. And so maybe they had more toys than the other preachers. They had this, 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 this really good message that sounded good to their ears and to their emotions. They looked good. But when you got up close and looked inside, there was nothing there. Looked great on Instagram, but behind the scenes, they were dry had no vitality, no life. The promises they made were empty. Peter was a well too. And inside of Peter, if you approached him, you would find 
everlasting water springing up out of his life. The spiritual thirsty traveler would have approached Peter, and Peter was full of water coming from the source of Jesus Christ. And what Peter offered the water in his well has survived over 2,000 years and continues to bless and water and nourish to this day. He had something to offer with his life to those that were under his influence and that continue to be under his influence. And so the question is this, are you a dry well or are you a full well? If I came to your life tonight and I needed spiritual nourishment and I needed refreshment, I needed some spiritual water, what would I get? I'm going to challenge you with this thought. The people in your life need you to be full of living water. Your family, your friends, your loved ones, this world needs Christians that are full of living water. Not dried out, but full of truth. Able to offer something of real hope to those who have none. Like the Samaritan woman who comes to Jesus, and Jesus uses this metaphor of a well, just like Peter did. And and perhaps that was on Peter's mind. I don't know as he penned these words. But it very well may have been. And Jesus says, I've got lots of water. And these men have none. So what do you have? How do we fill our well? How do we have that kind of water? We have to make a choice every day to serve God and not our flesh. The false teachers promised you could do what you wanted to do and you could still have liberty. The problem was with this. They didn't have liberty and they didn't know that they didn't have liberty because they had simply traded masters. See, look at verse 19, the first part of it again. It says, while they promised them liberty, he says, they themselves are the servants of corruption. As they yielded their lives to sin, they placed themselves under the power of its corrosive destruction. So it wasn't like, hey, we're, 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 we're totally free here. We can do what we want. No, Peter says, hold on a second. You've left serving God, but it's not like you're completely free. No, instead, you've become a servant of sin. And you're going to suffer the consequences of that sin. And it's destructive. They had just traded masters. And then Peter gives this principle in verse 19. He says, for of whom a man is overcome, of the same is he brought into bondage. Now, that's not good or bad. It's just a principle. It's a proverb. So, of whom a man is overcome, of the same is he brought into bondage. Okay, it's an easy principle to understand. You have two nations. They go to war with each other. There are nations in the world right now at war. Okay, one nation wins, and they subjugate the other nation. So the guys that win tell the guys that lost how it's going to be. That's, that's what he's saying. It's just a basic proverb. It's a basic principle. It's not hard to understand. We are all subjugated to other influences in our lives. The only free being, with a capital B, is the one over everything, and it's not you or me. Now, he is free, but no one else is. We all serve someone. No one is strictly autonomous. You can be mastered by God, or you can be mastered by self, but you cannot be mastered by both. You have to choose a master. You're going to choose God, or you're going to choose mammon. You can't serve both simultaneously. And these false teachers, 
At one point from the text, we're serving God and they switched masters and said, we promise you liberty, but they themselves could not give it because they were themselves not free. They chose to walk away from God and to serve self instead. Now that sounds really bad, but in small ways, we do this every day. How do we, or how does one, come to serve self? Well, we give in to our desires, and we too don't exercise restraint. And that is the idea of wantonness. And that's what Peter is trying to drive home. We allow our looks to linger. We engage in self-pity. We give into our anger. We eat another bite of food. We don't commit. We choose the easy route over striving. The list goes on and on. And in a word, we would just say we indulge. And we too begin to give into self and to wantonness. And moment by moment, there are times in our days where we too switch masters. And we become slaves to self. We serve self. And when you consistently serve self, you too come into bondage. Because he goes on to say, for of whom a man is overcome, the same as he brought into bondage. The price for giving into our desires is we become enslaved by them. Enslaved by our lust. Enslaved by our anger. Enslaved by our loneliness. Our negative thinking. Our appetites. Every time you give in to those thoughts, every time you give in to those actions, you become more and more a slave to them and you are brought into bondage by them. Our emotions and our appetites literally become our master and we trade them. And that's what these people had done. But it doesn't have to be that way. There is victory and there is liberty in Christ that can be had. You can be overcome, not by sin and self, but by God. 1 Corinthians 6, 12, Paul says, all things are lawful unto me. He says, I get it. I get the principle of Christian liberty. I get what I can have, what I can't have. He said, but all things are not expedient. Just because I can does not mean I should. It might be in my purview to have this Christian liberty. It doesn't mean I should do it. All things are lawful to me, but not all things are best for me. Or maybe it's not just for me, but maybe it's not what's best for my family or my church family. So I got to be careful with this principle here of Christian liberty. And he goes on to say, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. When you give yourself to an influence, you become subjugated to that influence. Okay, verse 13, he says specifically, meats for the belly. Okay, he's going to talk about food here. We don't like to talk about being subjugated by food, but many of us are too frequently. And he says, so meats for the belly. This is his illustration and the Bible, not mine, because when we are overcome by food indulgence, it is overcome in a lot of other areas of our life. So maybe that's why he's tackling this specific issue. He says, meats for the belly, the belly for meats, but God shall destroy both it and them. Now the body, he says, is not for fornication, not for misuse, but for the Lord. And the Lord 
for the body. Don't be brought unto the subjugation of any influence but God. We can serve God. We can choose to have him as our master. We can fight the flesh. We can choose differently. We can ask for God's help in overcoming the sins in our lives. But it starts with a desire, at the very least, to do things his way. And these people didn't want to do things God's way. Don't want to do it his way. Don't don't preach that kind of gospel to me. I like the liberty gospel. I can eat what I want to eat. I can look at what I want to look at. I can watch what I want to watch. I can do what I want to do with my time. I don't have to commit. Give me that life. And it appeals to us. And Peter is breathing fire on that type of thinking. If you choose to serve God and make him your master, then you need to love him. And love his way of doing things. Psalms eleven seven says, For the righteous Lord loveth righteousness. And if we care about him, then we care about the things he cares about. Coming to know Christ is life's greatest decision. I, 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 uh, I believe, because I've, I've, I've been there and I've spoken to each one of my kids, um, that all of my children know Jesus Christ as their Savior. And I can't tell you as a dad what relief that is. Elizabeth and I, from the moment they were born, prayed for that. Biggest burden on my heart that they'd be saved. That they would know forever that Christ Christ, and they would know that heaven is their home. There's no greater decision and perhaps no greater moment in this life. There would be nothing worse than to face the judgment of your God in sin and spend an eternity in hell. There is great peace and there is great satisfaction knowing that you're saved, that eternity is secure, that nothing, the Bible says, can take you from the hand of God. Heaven is yours forever because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Okay, but the moment that that peace is felt in the heart of a man, woman, boy, or child, boy, heaven is my home, there is a danger that also begins to rise in the heart because there can arise a smug satisfaction and a presumption of God's grace. Eternal security can lead to an unconcern for righteousness and holiness in one's life. And that's where these people were. I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. Why should I be so concerned about my actions, my attitudes, and my thoughts today? Because you're saved, and because God saved you forever, you can sin and still go to heaven. Okay, and if you sin and lose your salvation, then all of us are probably in big trouble. Because you're saved means you don't have to be faithful to church, and you can still go to heaven. Now, the Bible clearly instructs us to assemble together every time we're assembled together, however frequent that is. But I I could treat that flippantly and still go to heaven. Because you're saved, I don't have to tithe. I don't have to give offering. I don't have to give above and beyond the tithe. I'm still going to go to heaven. That's disobedience. And I'm sinning by not giving. But I could still go to heaven. Because you're saved means you don't have to love. You don't have to serve. You don't have to grow. And you still get to go to heaven. 
Jesus Christ paid the debt for your sin forever. But some of these people, like some of us, took God's grace and His salvation. They discovered the liberation that it brought them. And through their living, they cheapened God's grace. They used theological jargon and human logic to excuse and to justify their sin. And they had fun doing it. And it brought them some joy. It didn't fully disappoint. There was some joy in it. There was some happiness that came from that sin. The problem is this. It only lasts for a short season. And then it ends. And the destruction of it is awful. God's judgment might be delayed in your life, in mine, but it is coming. God gives grace freely, but He will not let you abuse it. God severely judges those who sin willingly and intentionally. Now I want you to look back at verse 20 with me. And this is what Peter writes. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ... He says they are again entangled therein and overcome. The latter end is worse than with them than the beginning. For had it been better for them to not have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. I've read a lot of commentaries on this passage. There's a lot of debate over what these verses mean theologically. Some people use them to support the idea that you can lose your salvation. There are too many other passages that deal with the security of the believer. I don't believe that. Some say the people were never saved. Some say, in fact, some of the honest authors say, we really don't know exactly what Peter means here. (laughs) Which, thank you, Captain Obvious, for wasting my time, right? I, I think there's a principle here. Because I honestly don't know exactly what he means. But I do understand what he's trying to communicate. And what he's trying to communicate is this. If you know the truth and you turn against it, there are terrible consequences. That's the point. That's the point. So whether they were saved or whether they were not saved, I'm not exactly sure. I know this. If you know to do right and you don't do right, you're in big trouble. It's one thing when, when one of my children does something wrong, but it's out of ignorance. Okay, they might be disciplined or corrected for that, but there's empathy there. The severity of the discipline is much less. But when I directly tell a child something to do, and they know better, and then they do it anyway, and it's willful disobedience, as their dad, that hurts me, It angers me, and the hammer gets dropped because it's willful disobedience. And that's what God's saying. That's what Peter's communicating. You're messing with God, and the hammer is going to get dropped. You know to do right, and you haven't done it, then you're in big trouble. They knew better. And not just that, they were warned. Chapter 3, Peter's going to talk about the long-suffering of God. He is so much more long-suffering than you and I are. And they did it anyway. They took their salvation. They took the precious gifts of God, His grace, His love, 
his liberty, his freedom, and they abused it. And verse 22, look there with me, Peter says this, but it has happened unto them according to the true proverb, the dog has turned to his own vomit again. The sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. Some of us have never fully grasped the value of our salvation. And it's borne out in the way we live our lives. Or if we have, at one point in our lives, fully grasped the value of our salvation, we don't live like it and we have forgotten it. We are content to wallow in the vomit and the mud of this world. And it's disgusting and it's filthy. We go to church, we hear the truth, we're raised in it, we know what's right, and then we return to the puke and the mud of the world. And we allow our flesh to dominate our thinking. We're unkind, we're uncivil, we're thoughtless, we have no manners. And the challenge from Peter is this, get cleaned up. Start living for God. If you choose Him as your master, then act like it and love the things He loves. And be the kind of man, the kind of woman, and the kind of young person that God expects you to be. Earlier, I read from Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, when Paul said, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free. But that verse goes on. I stopped right in the middle. And he goes on to say, And be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. In verse 13 of that same chapter, he says, For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh. Don't take your liberty and misuse it. Don't abuse what God's given to you. He says instead of it, he says instead, but by love, serve one another. If you choose to serve God and not your flesh, then love him and do things his way. And then by love, serve one another. Take the water that God gives to you, that Jesus gave to the woman in Samaria, who had had a lot of husbands and lived a long life of sin, but Jesus just didn't give her a cup of water that satisfied her for a day. He gave her water that lasted the rest of her life and still lasts today. She's still drinking on it. And you can have that kind of water to give to other people. And by love, with that kind of water, serve one another. Having the gift of God's grace and mercy, mercy should incite us to extend that grace and that mercy to other people. Okay, returning to verse 17. Using his illustration of wells and clouds as a metaphor for a meaningful life, let's consider this. Wells are made to give water to those who need it. A thirsty traveler, a rancher, a farmer, and to these men, the dry well is worthless and it's wasted. Or clouds, he talks about clouds. Clouds are the key element in moving water from one place to another, even to this day. With all of our modern and sophisticated abilities, we're still dependent on rain for our way of life. Remove the rain and our land turns ugly and barren. It is needed for what's good and right, for beauty and joy. In Acts 14, the Bible says, Nevertheless, he left not himself without witness in that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons. And what does rain from heaven produce? Fruitful seasons. And he says, filling our hearts with food and gladness. That's what the rain allows. 
It allows food and gladness. See, we have a job as Christians to fill the hearts of other people with spiritual food and gladness through the living water that comes in our lives and comes out of our lives. In Job 37, he says to the snow, fall on the earth and to the rain shower, be a mighty downpour. It's what he said this morning to that rain shower. He said, be a mighty downpour, and it was. We could paraphrase that tonight and change the wording a little bit. He says to the Christian, fall on the lives of others. And to those who love their God, be a mighty blessing. That's the idea. Wells are made to give water. Clouds made to rain. But they can only do so when they are not dry. So here's the question tonight again. What are you using your Christian liberty for? Are you using it to serve and love God and the things He loves, the world He's given to you? Or do you use it as an occasion to sin? And not just the sins that we commit overtly, but the ones that were things we're supposed to be doing that we're not doing. Using liberty as an occasion to sin. We too easily justify our lack of righteousness, our lack of holiness. We mock it so we don't have to do serious business with it. Some of us are going to leave tonight after hearing a day of preaching and music and like a dog returning to its vomit. Like a pig going back to the slop of the world. We're going to leave tonight and go back to our sinful attitude and our judgmentalism and our negativity and our cynicism and our cruelty, the way we treat people around us and our laziness and our lack of commitment, just like a dog, just like a pig. And we're spiritually dry and we have nothing to offer people. And the people that are in proximity to us need the water that we could have. And instead, they get nothing from us. We don't have to live like that. Because tonight, maybe like the woman in John 4, we go back to Jesus and say, Lord, would you fill me up? Because I need something to offer the people in my life. And I need some water for myself And I need some water for others. And I do business with you. There's some things I need to get right. Because God, maybe, maybe I'm serving myself too much. Maybe I've just traded masters. And maybe I'm subjugated and overcome by the things I've given myself to. Lord, I love you. And if you do, then how about you love the things he loves? And how about you become a well of water and a cloud with rain and be a blessing in the way he intends you 